I know there, there was some debate about whether or not that would happen, but here I am. <laughs> uh, first of all, um, I did, I did want to say this about the retreat coming up. Uh, it's September 12th through 14th. Um, it's going to be a really, really good time. Um, Sammy Rhodes is the speaker. He's really funny. He's on Twitter. He's a great speaker. He'll be talking a lot about kind of tough issues from the Bible in terms of relationships, in terms of how to deal with parents, in terms of uh, dealing with depression, emotions. He's just a really thoughtful, feeling guy who's also really clever and funny um, in a lot of ways. Uh, Also, if you need a scholarship or if you want a scholarship, let me know. Um, First year's... It'll be $70 for you, I'll scholarship $30 for you. For everyone else, uh, senior and below, I'll do, uh, we'll take $20 off, so it's $80 for y'all, regardless. If that's still too much, let me know. I don't want money to be a problem or a cost for you to say, hey, I can't make it because of this. Um, the retreat essentially is, you go, you get there on Friday night, you hear a really good sermon, you wake up in the morning on Saturday, you hear another good sermon. You hang out all day at this awesome retreat center with a lake and a slide, and we play Ultimate Frisbee and Crush, whatever team is there. We beat App State last year, which is awesome. Uh, NC State, I think, will be there this year. They've been a perennial powerhouse, and we will take them down. <laughs> uh, and then that night, uh, another sermon. There's a fun, really fun dance party by the lake. And then the next morning, uh, you wake up, hear another sermon, and we roll out. You'll be home by one, two o'clock in the um, afternoon to study and do whatever you need to do. So it's a really great time. It's a fun weekend. It's a good time to kind of relax and get your stuff kind of together and read if you want to read as the, the school year starts. Uh, also, also, cable television will be there, and if you're interested in watching football, it's happening. Uh, I'm going to watch the Tigers beat uh, Arkansas State, or Arkansas, so that'll be good. I wouldn't ask you to leave. <laughs> and not be able to get SEC football. Uh, I know you don't care about that. <laughs> I will say this also. Uh, today, Katie and I brought home the baby, which was fun. Uh, so she's, she's doing good. She's home. She's safe. The baby's safe. They're just both sleeping and eating and hanging out and recovering. So that's really good. Um, so yeah, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for um, the text messages and emails and everything else we've gotten. It's been so thoughtful and so kind. We felt so loved by all of you. So thank you so much. Um, cool. So I don't know if you, you have Netflix or if you have someone else's Netflix account. Uh, <laughs> feels like more of what we've got going on. Uh, <laughs> but if you have Netflix, you know anything about Netflix, you know there's like really good stuff on there and then there's like kind of the, you start to scrape the bottom of the barrel of things and you're just like, why is there all this stuff on here too? Uh, I'm not interested in like the 1950s version of Sinbad. Uh, <laughs> though it's on there if you're interested uh, but recently on there I was I kind of run out of like Mad Men and other things like that and I was kind of started to watch documentaries went through a documentary phase and I watched one recently called Inside North Korea which was a National Geographic documentary which is really good and kind of the frame the beginning or the end of this documentary is about this doctor who leaves the United States and goes to North Korea and he's going with the goal that he's going to go and he's going to perform 1,000 cataract surgeries in 10 days. So 100 surgeries a day, 10 days, and bust it to do this. He works early, early, early in the morning, all the way late into the night, working all through the day, just doing surgery after surgery after surgery. And at the end of the documentary, 
he's done it. He's reached his goal of a thousand surgeries in ten days, which is a pretty awesome feat. And so he brings all of the people that he's operated on into this big room. And in the back there's these double doors and there's these benches where everyone is sitting down with bandages and gauze over their face. And then at the very front there's this kind of, I guess, raised dais. And there's these two portraits up there. It's almost like this kind of altar. And the two portraits are of the two dictators, four dictators in North Korea, Kim Jong-il and his father. And they're kind of looking stern and stiff, and they're looking out over this crowd of people. And the doctor starts to remove the bandages from people's eyes, just very tenderly, very gently, gauze after gauze, checks it out with a little white thing to make sure they can see. And one after another after another, people jump up, they run past the doctor, they run up to the front of the room to where the dais is and start to jump up and down and say, thank you, great general, thank you, great general, for restoring my sight, for letting me see again. One of the most poignant one of these was a young woman who'd been blind almost her entire life. She runs up to the front like all the rest. She can finally see, and what does she say? She says, thank you, great general, thank you, great general, for restoring my sight. Now I can work harder for you in the salt mines to get you more salt so that you will be happier with me. And y'all, that is such a picture of the idolatry that we want to free people from. But if we're not careful, that can be us as well. This semester we're going through the letter to the Galatians. And foundationally, the question that Paul is asking here is... What kind of God is the God of the Bible? Like if you could really see Him, when you really start to understand who He is, what is God like? I think this is the same conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees in the Gospels as well. Both Jesus and the Pharisees believed in the Old Testament. They both believed in God. They both thought that God was just and merciful. But at the end of the day, the Pharisees taught that grace was conditional on what you did, on how hard you worked, on all the things that you did. Were you born of a certain race? Had you kind of checked off all the boxes that were there? And Jesus was furious with them because this kind of grace, this kind of understanding of who God is, distorts the character of His Father in heaven. And all of us struggle with this. I do, you do, everybody. This is just the default setting of our heart that we want to say that grace is conditional. But the truth of the Bible is that it's not. And that it's free and it's unmerited and it comes because of God's work in your life apart from what you do. So, I have two points tonight as we read Galatians. One, what is the curse of the false gospel that Paul is talking about here? And two, where does the true gospel lead? The curse of the false gospel, and where does the true gospel lead? So let's read Galatians 1, 6-10, and we'll get going here. This is Paul speaking. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, 
If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me pray for us and get started tonight. Father, this is the default of all of our heart. Lord, that we worry that your grace is conditional. We worry about the things we feel like we have to jump through. The feelings we feel like we have to conjure up inside of our hearts. God, I pray that you would be with us tonight. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear about your goodness, about your kindness through your son Jesus. Lord, about the mercy that we receive through your gospel. God, I pray you would be with us, you would dwell richly with your people. God, that you would move in our hearts. Lord, that you would set us free to serve you, to know you, to be loved, and to love others. In your sins name we pray. Amen. So what's made Paul so mad here is his opponents are not saying that there is no God. They're not atheists here. Paul's problem is not that these people are atheists. His problem is that these people are saying they're Christians, and they're saying, I get that you say that Jesus is the only way for people to be saved from their sin. But if you really want to be in with God, if you really want to make it, if you really want to get your stuff together, then here's this list of stuff you need to do. And for them, it was kind of keeping the Old Testament laws of eating, of circumcision, of things like that. And Paul is really, really frustrated. And what I think is so tricky about all this for us is that, like I said, this is the default of our heart. Think about what it took you to get into Chapel Hill. Think about the hard work, the long hours of studying, the race to be in kind of the top 10% of your class. And then when you got here, it was a lot of the same, right? More hard work, more studying, uh, more building the resume, more thinking about what is the next summer internship. I know that some of you all have just finished the summer internship and you're already thinking about the next one. What's hard about this is we've been trained to think this way. We've lived, like I said last week, in a meritocracy. Where sometimes you have to scramble other, over other people to get to the top, and that's given us a lot of things. But it can really cost us a lot, too, when we think about what does it mean that God's grace is really free? I think to all of this, Paul asked the really simple question of, when your performance is the standard by which you live, how do you live how do you live when you fail? How do you live when you succeed? How do you live when other people fail you? Can you give yourself kindness? Can you treat other people with kindness when they mess up, when they don't live up to your standards? What happens when you don't meet your own standards? Do you beat yourself up? Do you drink to forget about it? Do you turn to pornography? Do you think about the relationship that you could have or you want to have? What do you do? What do you, how do you live when you live by your performance? You know, when you read the Bible, if you were to read it from cover to cover, you could ask yourself, you know, what are the conditions that people had to meet for God the Father to send His Son into the world to save His enemies? The people that He knew were going to crucify Him, that He knew were going to murder Him. What were the conditions that those people had to meet? Nothing. There were no conditions. God sent His Son freely into the world. This is the story of the Bible. 
Even if there were conditions, none of us could meet them. None of us could live up to those things. Because no one who, like us, is dead in their trespasses and dead in their sins by nature can meet those kind of conditions. How do we know if we're living by our work? How do we know if we're distorting the gospel in our minds? Think about this. What if you were the person who kind of grew up with this stuff? Who kind of grew up going to Sunday school, grew up going to church, um, kind of knew the answers when the people kind of asked you, kind of like, what is the Bible about? Jesus. No, how do we know? The Bible. Like that kind of stuff. <laughs> you got those two questions down, and you can work that. Um, which I don't want to knock that. That is a lot of the answer to the Bible. Um, <laughs> but you've got your Christian friends, and you've got your party friends, right? Like you've got the people that you hang out with and do the Bible stuff with, and you've got the people you hang out with and you kind of let loose and get out all that anxiety, all that worry, all that frustration. You kind of let your hair down and just go and be wild and have that kind of, um, I don't know, Van Wilder college experience. Do you have that? That kind of double life? You know, when we try to live that way, this kind of double standard in our life, where there's all these secrets about ourselves that the people around us that we think of as the good people don't know, we try to keep those two friend groups apart, we try to keep ourselves apart in a lot of ways, so that those two people are never in the same room. What is the problem there? What's the problem? I think the problem is this. In our minds, the gospel is really about appearing to look good or appearing to do good or performing for God when I need to perform. But it's not really about my heart. It's not really about what He's done for me. It's not about the story that God's telling. I had a friend of mine um, this last summer, we were hanging out and kind of talking about just life in general. And he was telling me about a friend's brother of his. And when he had been younger, he had committed this really, really horrible crime and hurt himself and hurt a lot of people. And to kind of deal with this, he had a really, really, really religious phase of his life where he did all the church stuff. He was kind of the church religious guy. But then after a while, maybe a year or so, he just dropped out of that and he flipped the coin with the exact opposite way. He kind of went really into drugs, really into partying, really into promiscuity. My friend had a really good point there. And he said that, you know, really, those are just the same side, or two sides of the same coin. That trying to deal with his guilt through his religious works, or trying to forget about his guilt through drinking, partying, whatever. But at the end of the day, his guilt wasn't dealt with. Because his heart wasn't dealt with. Because the only way to really deal with your guilt, the only way to really deal with who you are and the weight of your personhood, which is both glorious and broken, is to have God deal with those things too. To invite Him in to say, Lord, this is me. This is me and my depravity. This is me and my glory. You know it all. And here I am and I need you. That's the way to deal with those things. You know, I think that Christianity is such a true religion because nobody would make this stuff up. Like if someone had made Christianity up, they would have said, look, to get in, you have to stop drinking. To get in, you have to stop watching good movies. To get in, you have to pray this many times a day. You have to take the right kind of bath at this time and not that time. To get in, you really have to do all these things. But that's not Christianity. 
I think some people try to pass it off that way at times, but it's not. Christianity and real Christians are people who for all their faults, for all their sins, for all their immaturity, and for all their weakness, at the end of the day, look at all the good things they've done, the really glorious things that they do, where they serve, the way they care for people. They look at all the bad things they do, the motivations of their hearts, sometimes the way they hurt people, and say things they shouldn't say. They look at both those things, and they run from that. And they run to Jesus. And they say, you are everything. You give me my good works. You give me my right standing. You give me my personhood. Show me how to be me. Show me who it is, how it is to be a person. How to really love other people. You know, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ nailed to a cross, dying for people, is how God has showed us how to love. And it's how He's made us how to love. And that's the gospel. And that's why Paul says here, but even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Because what you think about the gospel, what you think about Christianity, what you think about the Bible, really does matter. It really does shape your heart. It shapes your life. It shapes who you are and how you love and treat other people. Your thinking matters. Your heart matters. Your actions matter. All those things, three things together are who you are. They make up how you're becoming in this world. So, if that's part of the, the curse of the false gospel, then where does the true gospel lead us? Look at verse 10 here. This is Paul talking. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, I think the issue of Christianity, and what is Christianity when you get down to brass tacks? If you strip away denominations, strip away interpretations of the end of the world, strip away worship styles, whatever else you like, what would you be left with? The freedom that comes from knowing God and receiving His love in Christ. When you have a relationship that costs nothing, but gives everything, one where there's safety, where there's peace, where true and lasting intimacy is there, then what's the result of that? What's the result of that when you have that with your friends or your family? What's the result of that when you have that with God? The freedom to struggle. The freedom to be a first-year student here and not know where classes are. Or to go out with your friends and make some mistakes and know, like, God does not cast me away because of this. Or to be someplace and not feel it, maybe for the first time. And know, just because I don't feel it doesn't mean that I'm not in It's the freedom to be a senior and to be panicked about what's coming up next and to not know and to worry that, man, I may go home and live in my parents' basement. That's okay. That's the gospel freedom that you have. You know, when you live in relationships that depend upon how attractive you are, how smart you are, how competent you are, your work ethic, your moral standing, your social standing, what's the result of that? Slavery, because you'll always have to work on those things. You'll always have to be attractive. You'll always have to be a hard worker. You'll always have to be competent. You'll be a slave to your competency, a slave to your work ethic, a slave to your beauty. You know, the person, what about this person? Have you ever sat down with someone and been like, this is like, this is Mr. or this is Miss 
like UNC. Like, they have got it all going on. They run this place. They run this show. Have you ever sat down with that person at lunch and just had that person say, you know, if you want to make it in the world, you've got to take the bull by the horns. And you've got to make your own way. You've got to do it for you. You've got to go out there. You've got to succeed. But then that person goes, and they're a slave to the expectations of the professors. They're a slave to the expectations of the potential bosses. A slave to the idea that, you know, if I work hard enough, if I make enough money, like, then I'll finally be happy. That's real slavery. Even though it can look like freedom at times. You know, community groups and Bible study, I think, can be counterintuitive for us here at UNC. Because you're laying aside hours of your week and have nothing tangible to show for it, right? You just sat and talked to people and communicated with people and connected with them. But at the end of the day, like, there's not a grade that you get. There's not like this thing that you've done where you can show it to other folks. Is life about the tangible results you make? Or is life about the person that you're becoming? And the way that you love people and the state of your heart before God? Those are two very different paths. Alright, so why do we serve? Why do we serve here? Or why do we avoid sin? If Paul is free, why does he call himself a servant of God? I thought he was free. You can't be a servant and be free, right? What if it's an and-both thing? What if they're both true? I think C.S. Lewis is helpful here. C.S. Lewis says this, The Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. Those people hope by being good to please God if there is one, or if they think there's not, at least the hope of being good for the approval of other people. But the Christian thinks any good that he does comes from the Christ life inside of them, from what God has given you. The Christian doesn't think God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good. Do you hear that? He will make us good because He loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse doesn't attract the sun because it's bright. Think of like a metal tin roof in the day. But the roof of that greenhouse becomes bright because the sun shines on it. Is that place hot and warm, and it just had the light and the heat of the sun on it because it was already bright? Or does it become that way because the sun is shown on it? That's the Christian life. That we become good, we become loving, we become people of real character and service because the sun has shone on us and given us life and light and love. And in love is real service, in love is real freedom, that if you have been loved by a man on a cross who died freely for you, then he has shown you what love is and it is service for other people. I think for us that means that our service is not for us. It's not for our resume. It's not to tell other people what we're doing. I would say this. Take someone to the grocery store who doesn't have a car. Take someone that you know doesn't have a lot of friends and it kind of gets on your nerves out to lunch and spend time with them and love them and care for them because no one else is going to do it. And they're probably not going to ask for it even though they need it. Tithe to a church or to some worthy cause and tell no one about it. Give your money away freely. You don't have much, but you have some. Give some away freely. But give freely and love freely because you're free. 
You're not a slave to money. You're not a slave to work. You're not a slave to your resume. You can be a servant of others because you're not even a slave to freedom. You can give your life as Christ has given his. Um, I'll end with this. How do we get that? Like, if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, I get what you're saying, I understand that, but like, on a really deep level, I don't know if I'm tracking. I don't know if I can get that. You say this grace is free and I can't do anything to get it. How do I get the grace? You know, Christian, non-Christian, that's the question we're all asking, right? Let's say this. Go to the place and go to those places where God has freely shows us His grace. Where He invites us into the story. Read the Gospels. Spend time with people who know the Gospel and will seriously talk to you about it and help you think through it and love you in it and give you freedom to struggle. Pray. I mean, sincerely pray, God, show me how this works. Show me who you are. Because the point of the gospel is that God on a cross has done this new creation. He's given this new thing. You know, this, uh, this last Sunday, man, I had the greatest privilege of my life to see my wife give birth to our first child. And that was one of the most beautiful things. That was one of the most touching things. I don't even know how to describe it, really, except for this, that I was struck by the fact that in labor, she was so weak. She was so vulnerable. She was literally, like, crying out. And yet she was so strong at the same time. And she was so powerful. And she brought a human being into the world, and she went through pain that I've never seen in my life. And the metaphor that Paul uses for Christianity, the metaphor for what God has done to make the world new, is a woman giving birth. That on the cross, Jesus became so weak. He hurt so bad. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he was so strong. He brought something new into the world. And he does that for you and he does that for me. He does that through the cross. And he works that into our hearts through the Bible and through prayer, and for people telling you that story, and loving you into that story. Because it's His work. It's not ours. And it's powerful, and it's vulnerable, and it's beautiful all at once. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Son. Thank You for His vulnerability. Thank You for His power. Thank You that He makes a new creation in us through us, through your word. Lord, I pray that you would work that into our hearts tonight. Lord, for Christians, that is not only the gateway, that is the whole of our life long, is to look at your son and to look at his work. And Lord, for those who don't know you, it is the entrance in. God, I pray that all of us would know your son, would look on his work, would rest in him, rest in what he's done, and trust you and rejoice in freedom. And your sisters, I pray. Amen. <coughs>